This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 33, and today we are talking about some of our favorite nonfiction books of 2015. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with my fellow well redhead, Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello! Hello! I can talk again! Yay! It's very exciting. That's not really an issue for me, because I don't usually speak to people, you know, in the (laughs) week. Just you. Sometimes my boyfriend. I think that last week when my voice sounded so rough, it was because you were the first human that I had talked to (laughs) in my entire work day. Yeah, I just sit with books. Yeah, between the time that my husband left the house for his office and the time that we talked, I don't think I used my voice at all. (laughs) (laughs) You have to practice. Apparently, or like keep things warmed up or something, but no. We're back this week. It's our last, like, this is our last, like, 2015 content show. Correct. We'll, We'll have another show next week when it is still 2015, but next week's show will be a look ahead at some of the books of 2016 that we're the most excited about. Yay. So I know I'm pleased to be wrapping up the year. Me too. It's been a good year. Oh my goodness, and, yes. Yes. And you, I think maybe we mentioned it on the last show, but if we didn't or if you heard it, but you haven't had a chance to look at it yet, listeners, Liberty spent a day a couple weeks ago recommending 100 of her favorite books of the year. And the hashtag was what, 2015 damn good books? Yes. Okay, and then you collected them in a post at Book Riot. So you can search for that at Book Riot and you can see 100 of Liberty's recommendations for the year. I easily could have done 200. That's just so amazing. They're such a good year. You're a magical sparkle pony. (laughs) (laughs) Does that come with dental? Uh, Yes. Yay! And glitter, an endless lifetime supply of glitter. Excellent. That's all you really need. True... All right, lady, you're up first. Okay, so I was mentioning this to you before we started recording, but I'm going to mention it again. I am obsessed with the Netflix series Making a Murderer. Like, we have ingested six of them in the last 12 hours, my boyfriend That's and I. That's impressive. And I'm waiting for him to get home from work so that I can watch the last four because I'm completely obsessed with it. It's like, when you think you have everything figured out, then a new piece of evidence is introduced or a new witness appears, and it just keeps happening so that you change your mind about 500 times an episode being like, oh, it's this person. Wait, it's this person. Oh, wait, it was this. Oh, wait, it was this. It's completely insane. And that reminds me of this first book that I'm going to recommend. It's called The Dead Duke, His Secret Wife, and the Missing Corpse, An Extraordinary Edwardian Case of Deception and Intrigue by Pew Marie Eatwell. It is this crazy, insane, true story of this case that took place at the end of the 19th century. Um, There was an elderly widow, and she went to the British courts, And she had the most outlandish story that they had ever heard. She claimed that her late father-in-law, who was supposedly the merchant T.C. Druce, was actually the fifth Duke of Portland. Like, (laughs) this very fancy man. And she claimed that, you know, he was the fifth Duke of Portland, was, like, living this life, and he was very unhappy. So he went and had the secret life on the side. 
and pretended to be this merchant and had this store and did all this business and he had a family and kids and all this stuff. And then when he got tired of, you know, slapping it with the common people, apparently, he faked his death <laughs> and went back to just being the fifth Duke of Portland. Back in the day when you could do those things Oh, my easily. goodness, yeah. Like, when I read, like, those Civil War books and, like, the Westerns and stuff and you, you hear about all these people who are like, they just move one town over and, and everyone identity. believes that they were dead. And nobody knows who they are because, like, there's no texting. There's no internet, you know. Like, you don't know that this person isn't who they say they are. Um, so she claimed that he faked his death and that she wants the courts to open up the crypt of T.C. Druce. And it will prove that there is no body in there. And then, <gasps> therefore, her son should get all of the inheritance of the 5th Duke of Portland. The 5th Duke of Portland has been dead for, like, 20 years. Um, the 6th Duke of Portland has been living for decades as in his estate uh, he was like a, a close relative but not too close it was like the, the closest that they could find because the fifth duke of portland didn't have any children or a mm -hmm. wife or anything um and there's actually they there's all this evidence to support this claim the fifth duke was this weirdo that wouldn't interact with his servants like he insisted on like passing notes through holes and doors and huh. he had tunnels under his his estate like to take his his carriage out like he wouldn't ride in daylight and all his um carriages has cur had curtains and like even the drivers weren't aware like of what he looked like or if he was in there or not there's this great story about how one of his drivers like picked him up and and took him somewhere else and picked him up so many times he got confused and forgot that he was in there and like went to a bar <laughs> Like, not realizing, like, he was still in the carriage. Oh, they should so, make a Netflix series of this. Oh, it has to. It has, it's, it's so great. Um, so it, she does the, this amazing job with the suspense of the story. Like, you're waiting for them to open the crypt and, like, find out, like, who's it going to be? Who's in there? Is anybody in there? She's just like, I was like, I have to know right now. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, I love those books where, you know, People can't send, like I was saying, they can't send emails. They can't send text messages or, you know, just like, oh, let me Google that and see if that's true or yeah, what that person no, really like, looks like. fingerprint checking. No. No. So it's so amazing. And then on top of that being amazing, this book was published in England first. And when it came out, she learned some new information about all the, the players in this, this story. Oh, cool. And wrote this afterwards saying, like, and then this, 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 and this happened. And it's like, what? <laughs> Seriously. So amazing. I love this book. Again, it's called The Dead Duke, His Secret Wife, and the Missing Corpse, and it's by Pew Marie Eatwell, and her first name is spelled P-I-U. I missed that one this year. Like, I had it, and I just didn't read it in time. I'm going to have to do it oh. in the next, before it comes out in paperback, and then I can talk about it on the show again. <laughs> it's mental. It sounds so good. Okay, so before I do my first pick, we have to shout out our first sponsor this week. Um, this week, we are sponsored by the DK Holiday Gift Generator. Mm -hmm. If you are listening to this show on December 22nd or 23rd, and you are still stumped finding the perfect gift for someone for the holidays, the DK Holiday Gift Generator is here to help you. We have a link to it in the show notes. You go to it, you answer a few simple questions, and like magic, or maybe like you're a magical sparkle pony, the DK Holiday Gift generator suggests a book to fit your family member or your friend's interest. So just to give you a little taste of some of the books that DK has that you might get recommended to you, there are some Lego ones, there are some Star Wars ones, there is a Lego Star Wars book, there's something called Picturepedia that has every topic under the sun and beyond featured in this reference book with more than 10,000 stunning photographs that catalog the wonders of the world. Uh, there's the Marvel Avengers Encyclopedia, there's one called The Undertaker, 
Uh, this massive tome takes readers deep into the darkness where few dare to tread. Learn everything you need to know about sports entertainment's mysterious Grim Reaper of Justice. I was not expecting to get to the sports entertainment part of that blurb. <laughs> um, there's a book about Disney. There's a book about um, how machines work in the zoo. There's a book about the Pope. There's a book about musicals. There's one about design that covers Frank Gehry to Bauhaus and everything in between. We all know, and everybody listening to this show knows, that books make great gifts no matter who you're buying for or what they love. Plus, it's way easier to wrap than a full-scale replica of the Death Star. Uh, so <laughs> click the link in the show notes. Check out the DK Holiday Gift Generator. Again, just answer a couple simple questions about the person you're shopping for, and DK will recommend some books for you. And their books are big and beautiful and just they great. They are. I so love thanks. them to them for sponsoring. Um, I had such a hard time again ordering the books that we were going to talk about on the show and deciding when in the show to talk about which ones and did it mean something if I talked about one first and the other one second. So these are in no particular order, just an order that I decided would be fun to talk about. Um, my first pick is Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. Uh, she, this is one of the nonfiction books that ran like wildfire through the Book Riot community. It was one of our um, favorite books of the year that's in our best books of 2015 page. And and for very good reason. Uh, Emily Nagoski, Nagoski has her PhD in health behavior with a focus on human sexuality. She studied at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. There's really no better place to study sexuality. And so she's top notch in her field. And this book pulls together decade, decades of research about women's sexual responses and neuroscience to figure out really what's going on with when women want sex, when they don't, how women respond to it, and how women's sex drives work, and how those are different from men's. Um, sort of the core question that the book grows out of is that for a long time, scientists have been studying, trying to find a female equivalent of Viagra, but there's been no success, and it's really because women's bodies and brains work differently around sex than men's do. Um, so we have to really understand how brains work. It's not just a matter of like flowing enough blood to the appropriate parts of the anatomy. Um, it turns out, according to Nagoski's work, that the most important factor is not what women are doing in bed or even who they're doing it with, but how women feel about what we're doing in bed. It matters to feel relaxed and safe and excited uh, and to feel comfortable with your partner and to be able to communicate all of these things that seem kind of common sense, but that are really grounded in science and that there is brain research to show like what's going on in someone's brain when they're in a sexual situation and they don't feel excited to try the new thing or they're just not in the mood or whatever. And what can you do that will make your brain respond differently so that you can have the sexual experiences that you want? Um, Nagoski grounds all of the science in examples from her own life and from her practice, that, uh, from clients that she's seen, from the questions that friends ask her, from the questions that random strangers who just know that she's a sex researcher ask her. Um, it's really just down to earth and a very personable, accessible, um, sort of mix between science and self-help about women's sexuality. There's great practical advice. I don't know a woman who has read this book who didn't find something of use um, and that could be applied in her own life. Um, one caveat that Nagoski acknowledges in the text herself is that the research is really lacking for um, women's sexuality for trans women. And so this book is really focused on cis women and the people who have sex with them. So if you are a cis woman or you sleep with cis women, this is a great, important uh, resource. And again, it is called Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. The fact that you chose that first says everything. 
<laughs> it is a very Shinsky kind of selection. It's so good. <laughs> it is so good. And the cover is great. It's just everything about the book is really wonderful. Yeah, I loved it. Speaking of loving books, oh, which is really your what we're all about. Too. Yes. Uh, it is Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl by Carrie Brownstein. She is the guitarist and singer for Sleater Kinney, one of my very favorite bands. So I was so excited about this. Uh, she also is an actress. She's on Transparent in Portlandia. And turns out she's an amazing writer. Isn't it amazing mm-hmm. when people are like, oh, not only am I a great singer, but I can also act and dance. It's, and just, it's like, man, it's not fair. It's Share really not fair. The wealth, you know? <laughs> it's, but she is such an incredible writer. Like, I thought that her thoughts and observations and the way she explained them were as compelling as her story. Like, I would read a book about watching paint dry if she wrote it. Like, For sure. She was so clear and amazing. Um, so in Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, she talks about her life before music, like how uh, when she was very little, uh, she was an aggressive extrovert. She grew up in Seattle, and she constantly wanted to entertain people and be the center of attention. Like, I loved all her little stories about all mm-hmm. the plays and, and performances that she would put on. Like, you know, she would insist on doing a, a song before she went to bed. Like, she wouldn't go to bed until they let her sing them a song. And, and it, she's just so funny. Um, but she also talks about how, like, her home life was very formal, very sterile. Um, her parents didn't do a lot of emoting. There was not a lot of affection. Um, and you learn how her mother was very ill when Carrie was a teen, which Carrie used to get attention for herself. Like, she started talking to all the adults about, you know, her mother's illness and look at this grown-up girl, like, knowing all the stuff. And she loved the attention that she got, you know, not really considering, like, her mother's side of it, things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when she got older, after her parents had divorced, uh, her father came out to her. Um, which she was very supportive of. Uh, his mother was less so. It was it was really horrible. <laughs> his yeah, mother's really reaction. Horrible. <laughs> um, and she discusses how all these things, uh, as well as all the music that she listened to and all the shows she went to, helped her invent herself and get her interested in performing. Um, I love how she talks about her first concert was Madonna, like on the Like a Virgin tour. And she says, like, you know, and everybody booed the opening act, which happened to be the Beastie Boys. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? How could you boo the Beastie Boys? But I guess when you're a 10-year-old girl there to see Madonna, like, that doesn't make any sense to you why they're there. Yeah, that's an interesting pairing. Yeah. It's like when Jimi Hendrix was booed in Before the Monkeys, you know, it's it's kind of like that. Um, and she also, she tells a story about the day that she was standing in front of a stage at a concert, and she realized that she didn't want to be the one adoring someone on stage. She wanted to be the one on stage being adored. Like, I love how honest she is. She's like, I want attention. I yeah. want people to love me. I want to feel that. And she talks about how she tries to remember her experience as a fan when meeting fans, like, and tries to give that back to people. Um, she was the one who, who married uh, fans at, at her, her book books. event. Yeah. Right. Like, Amy Poehler was there, and she played green sleeves <laughs> on the piano while, while Carrie Brownstein married these women. It was great. Um, it's just a funny, smart, honest memoir, and I adored it to bits. I don't think you have to be a fan of any of her work to enjoy this book. It's really wonderful. And again, it's called Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl by Carrie Brownstein. I co-signed that one so hard. I don't know really anything about Slater Kinney. I've watched Portlandia. I like Carrie Brownstein, but I didn't know much about the parts of her life that she was writing about. I didn't know really many of the bands that she talked about, and I loved the book to pieces also. I think it's so interesting what you were saying about how honest and direct she is, because she's one of those celebrities that we don't really know much about. Like, it's not like reading a Kardashian memoir where you already know everything they're going to tell you. Yeah. Um, it was really surprising and refreshing, like really how open 
she is in the book because um, it's just it's kind of unexpected but because of how her persona seems to be. I loved it so much. Yeah, she's so awesome. She talks about how when she was a little kid, she used to throw temper tantrums, and her mother would call her Sarah Bernhardt. And when <laughs> I was little and I would throw temper tantrums, my mother would call me Sarah Bernhardt. I was like, you're obviously meant to be BFFs. You like, and Carrie Brownstein are long-lost sisters. Yeah, I'm like, I'm going to call her up and be like, hey, we have this in common. So That's pretty great. You yeah. should write her a fan letter. Yeah, that's a great idea. I bet do she would write Do people even write those anymore? Do you like do you, to write fan yeah. emails or do you like tweet at people? I guess, I don't know. We know authors who get fan emails yeah, that's true. Yeah, it, it's a thing. You could do it. Um, I'm going to go out of order so that I can dovetail off of your pick and say that um, one of my favorite nonfiction books this year and my next pick is Dear Mr. You by Mary Louise Parker. Um, we talked about it at our live show at Book Riot Live. And this is a memoir written as a series of letters to the men in Mary Louise Parker's life. And you know Mary Louise Parker from Weeds and from the West Wing and from uh, Fried Green Tomatoes and so many other wonderful things. She's a really terrific actress. And and she is a maddeningly good writer. It is not fair. If it turns out that she can sing too or something, I'm just going to be like jealous and hateful. Uh, she's just so good. Uh, so each piece in this collection is a letter to a man in her life, but these are relationships and interactions that are both real and imagined. So there are, there's the, the opening piece is to her grandfather that she never met because he died before she was born. And it imagines a part of his life that she had heard about, but, you know, never got to talk to him about. And she's writing to him about what she imagines that to be. She writes to former lovers. She writes to um, male relatives. She writes to friends. She writes to like a guy that she saw on a crosswalk and never talked to. And through all of it, she really reveals herself. Um, it's so interesting. There's been a lot of you know interesting criticism around like why would a woman center her memoir on these men? But the book is not about the men. It's about how she comes to understand herself through the interactions and relationships that she has. And many of them are imagined. Uh, so it's very, I thought it was just a really interesting, creative way to put a memoir together and to slowly reveal pieces of her life. The writing is really interesting. And it's very surprising and creative the way that she puts the words together. Um, I really from page one was like, Oh, okay, so she has chops like this isn't just going to be a fun thing to read because I like her and I want to know things about her life. It was uh, on an artistic level, a very enjoyable experience as well. And it has the added layer of if you follow along like gossipy Hollywood stuff at all, you might be able to guess who some of the men in these pieces are um, based on knowing who some of the men that she's been affiliated with through the years uh, are. So I enjoyed that piece of it as well. But I keep it's been months since I read it. And I just keep thinking about it and about how she constructed the book and wondering how she might construct her next book. I'm just going to hope and assume that there is a next one. Just a really surprising and lovely memoir, and I hope that we get to hear a lot more from her voice. That is Dear Mr. You by Mary Louise Parker. Awesome. So good. I'm going to talk about a book now that I've also already mentioned, but it was, you know, way back, I think in the summer, so I'm going to hit on it briefly again. And that is Leaving Orbit, Notes from the Last Days of American Spaceflight by Margaret Lazarus Dean. Um, and as I said, I talked about it several months ago, but it's so good, it's worth talking about again. Um, and I saw it on a lot of end-of-the-year lists. That made mm -hmm. me very happy because it's it's a small paperback release. I think it was paperback. Maybe it was hardcover. Oh, I can't remember. Moving on. Um, <laughs> it's a book. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a book. So right now we are experiencing this kind of space renaissance um, with all the news of, like, new galaxies and new planets and, you know, more new galaxies and hundreds of planets. And, you know, and then there's the Mars rover and all the pictures from Mars. But um, several years ago... 
you know, the space program had hit this kind of lull. Like, interest in it was at an all-time low. NASA wasn't getting funding the way they used to. Um, People didn't seem all that interested in what was out there. And so they decided they were done launching shuttles. So Margaret Dean Lazarus, or, yeah, Margaret Lazarus Dean, I should say, uh, she traveled to Cape Canaveral in early 2011 to witness the last three space shuttle launches. Um, and Which is really cool. I've never actually been to one, but I was in Florida once when one flew overhead, and I didn't think oh. I would be excited, but I was. It was That's really awesome. exciting. Yeah. Um, I was there for one of those. Um, and so she interviews NASA employees and astronauts, as well as the people who are there to watch the last launches, you know, like space fans, and ask them like what they how they feel about this being the end, you know. Um, but she also uh, discusses the history of the space shuttle and the space shuttle program, um, and she brilliantly documents not just what it is to be there at the end of the era, but like what it was like being one of the front runners in space exploration, like how that was such a big part of America's identity for so long. Um, and she talks about some of the famous people that had been captivated by space exploration throughout the years, like Norman Mailer and Thomas Wolfe, um, or Tom Wolfe, I should say. It's a, we were not on, like, a, a friendly basis, so maybe I should call him Thomas. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Tommy, <man. laughs> let's just... <laughs> but it's just, it's so interesting. Like, even I, like, I will admit, don't tell Swapna, but I'm not, like, really into space, you know? <laughs> um, but I was, I was captivated by this book. And uh, it's also, I want to mention again that this is a Grey Wolf Press book, and they, the quality of the nonfiction that they have been publishing the last few years is just amazing. They've just they, been one incredible book after another. And there's still more coming in 2016. I've read a couple, and I just, I can't believe it. So They're really on some kind of roll. Yeah, they're amazing. So, again, this book is called Leaving Orbit, and it is by Margaret Lazarus Dean. Awesome. Uh, before my next pick, it's time to thank our second sponsor. FabFitFun is back this week. FabFitFun is a subscription box with premium full-size fashion, beauty, fitness, and lifestyle products. Uh, so this is not like just your samples of nail polish where you can paint four nails or the lipstick that you can only use twice. It's the full-size good stuff. The box comes out once each season and it retails for $49.99, but it always has a value over $200. And the winter box, which is selling right now, it has a value of $312. Just, I'm not sure I've had $312 worth of like beauty products in my entire life. And I would like <laughs> for someone to teach me how to do that. Um, some of the products in the winter box include uh, body cream. There's a wine stopper and wine charm set. Uh, there's a Demolo- Dermalogica travel set that includes um, cleansing gel, toner, and skin smoothing cream for when you're traveling. And I know my skin gets dry and crazy and just awful when I'm traveling a lot. So that sounds especially useful. Um, there is a scent diffuser for your home. There are some earbuds. There are gift cards that total $65 in value. So those are already exceeding the $49.99 that you'll pay for the box. Past boxes have also included like lipstick. There's a little, there was a little charger for like a portable charger for cell phones. Um, in the box that I received, Zumba DVDs, hair oil, you name it, they cover it. Um, fashion, beauty, fitness, and lifestyle products. This is definitely geared towards um, female customers and towards the kinds of things that are marketed and sold to women. And I know that some of our listeners have bought these and have really loved them. Um, you can check it out by going to fabfitfun.com. You use the code BOOKS for $10 off your first box. So that makes your first box $39.99 and you get $312 worth of value, which is almost 10 times the bang for your buck, which is awesome. Uh, so again, go to fabfitfun.com, use the coupon code BOOKS for $10 off your first box. And thanks again to FabFitFun for sponsoring. I like subscription boxes. I'm happy that they're back. 
Yeah, they're fun. So my next pick, and I'm going to cheat and sort of do two in one, uh, is Between the World and Me by ta Coates. This was, I think, the biggest book of 2015. Given what happened in America this year, um, the kinds of conversations that we have begun having about race uh, and the Black Lives Matter movement, the book was, um, the, the publication date was bumped up by several months, I think, in response to the Charleston church shootings. Uh, and it's just incredibly timely. Uh, Coates wrote this as a memoir. It's a letter essentially to his teenage son about what it is to be black in America. He traces the history and the evolution of racism. He prevents, uh, he presents co- the connections that exist between present day systems and how those systems could not exist the way that they do in our culture without the historical subjugation of black people. So it, really it's about the literal ways that American society is built on black bodies. Um, There has been interesting criticism about the book that it's centered on the black male experience. Coates has responded to that um, saying, you know, well, I am a black man and I've only had this experience. Um, I don't know all of the ways that he could have approached it differently or could have added in, you know, more intersectionality. But it's I think it's certainly worth reading. Um, Black people are not a monolith. No marginalized group is a monolith. And we need many, many voices. And I read the criticism as really revealing how few you black writers are given this kind of platform to tell their story and to talk about race in America and how that dearth means we really have so much work still to do. Um, it's, it's a really incredible book. It's a short read. It's very captivating. I think probably the most important work of nonfiction that we got this year. Um, And again, very timely for what has been going on in this country. Um, And as a shout out, my sort of two-in-one pairing, I also want to mention Negroland by Margot Jefferson, uh, which is a memoir about her experience growing up as a black woman in a very affluent black community in Chicago. And the book is essentially an indictment of respectability politics. Um, Her black community, which she refers to as Negroland, um, really wanted to behave in such a way that none of the white people around them in their neighborhoods and in their private schools and, you know, the community groups that they were members of would judge them or associate them with what were perceived to be lower class black behaviors. And as she grows up and gets perspective really on what that meant for herself as a black woman and her identity, um, she's pretty angry about the situation. And so she goes into the respectability politics. The last section of the book is, I think, the clearest and best best argued laying out of what intersectional feminism really means, um, how to look at fighting for women's rights um, and how those are different depending on the race and the color of the women that are involved, how class ties into it, and how racism is a feminist issue. Um, It's a really wonderful book. I loved reading it. I think it was under-discussed, and I would love to see it more widely read. So uh, my one-two pick, again, is Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates and Negroland by Margot Jackson. Jefferson. Nice. My next pick is also about race and America, but it takes place uh, in the early 1900s. And this book is called Spectacle, The Astonishing Life of Otobenga by Pamela Newkirk. Mm. And I would have to say, of all the books that I've read, this is the first one I've seen so many people say they're taking a pass on. Like huh. after, after I read a book, I like to see what other people are saying about it. And so many people were like, oh, hell no, I'm not like, reading this book. They're just never going to try it? Yeah, it's why not? So, it's the true story of Odebenga, who was an African man who was kidnapped and displayed first as part of an anthropology exhibit in Missouri, then oh no. in a monkey house at the Bronx Zoo in the early 1900s. 
Ugh. There is no denying that this is horrific and unconscionable. I mean, it's it's so alarming. Like, what happened to him is just horrible. Um, but the author writes a very compelling introduction, saying those very things, but also explaining why, like, his story is of historical significance. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he was a very small man. He was about five feet tall, and his teeth had been sharpened to points, and people were just so completely fascinated with him. And they would come to the zoo and just stare at him for hours. And he would be in his enclosure with, with monkeys, and he would sit there and weave baskets, and he would shoot his bow and arrow, or more often he would just sit there and stare back at people and and because you know what do you say about that you know um but immediately thankfully uh there were some people who were like you can't treat a human this way like this is ridiculous like you cannot do this and he was eventually released um i don't want to say too much more about what happens to him after he leaves the zoo uh, I was actually reading a novel earlier this year before I had read Spectacle, and a character in the novel remarks like something was similar to what happened to Oda Benga, and I was like, no! Oh. Like, I had been planning on reading Spectacle in mm-hmm. a few weeks, and I was like, ah, now I know, like, the ending. Um, but I just can't believe I've never heard this story before. It's so completely shocking and horrible. And the truth of the people responsible for his captivity got twisted over the years, as mm. stories from history do, so, so that... To say, like, oh, his captors were his friends and his saviors and how lucky he was to come to America and oh. get out of the Congo where King Leopold yeah. was doing horrible things. And, you know, and she's, like, setting the record straight, you know. It's also an interesting look at race in the early 1900s and how African Americans were still tr- being treated, you know, 40 years after the end of the Civil War, you know, even in a supposedly progressive city such as, as New York. Mm-hmm. Um, like The Dead Duke, this is a book that just will have you gasping in shock pretty much the entire time. Uh, but it's so fascinating, and I think really worth the read. And again, it's called Spectacle, The Life, uh, the Astonishing Life of Oda Benga by Pamela Newkirk. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Coates does a little of that in Between the World and Me, looking at racist pieces of history that just don't get, that we're not taught in school, and who has control of the narrative and how those things happen and how much work there is to do to, like you're saying, set the record straight and tell the stories about the awful things and force ourselves to look at the awful things that were done so that we don't do them again. Um, I'm going to read Spectacle. That sounds really wonderful. Um, my next one is about a difficult subject also. We seem to be like we're, we're, we have just uh, convenient segues this time. Uh, it's Missoula, Rape and the Justice System in a College Town by John Krakauer. Uh, this is about exactly what the title says it's about. Um, between January of 2008 and May of 2012, there were more than 350 sexual assaults reported in Missoula, Montana, which is a college town. Um, Krakauer became interested in what was going on there when a young woman that he knew was raped. And uh, he was shocked by what he found when he started digging into what was going on in Missoula, but also what was going on in the country as a whole. Um, He uses Missoula, which actually has a lower than average rate of rape and sexual assault, to look at larger problems in how colleges handle reports of rape and sexual assault and how law enforcement handles and mishandles reports of it. And it is maddening. The information, the statistics in this book are so important and so shocking and so terrifying um, about exactly 
how many, particularly women on college campuses, are sexually assaulted uh, and what happens when they try to report it to authorities at their school, what happens when they go to the police and the police say things like, well, um, are you sure that you didn't just like cheat on your boyfriend and you don't want him to find out so you're claiming that it was rape? Just all sorts of repeatedly terrible behaviors by people at every level in the system that is supposed to be a system that serves victims and instead provides a lot of reasons that many people don't even come forward to report that they were raped or sexually assaulted. And so Krakauer lays out the evidence, lays out the numbers and talks about ways that you know we could and should be working on how we respond and how we prevent um, sexual assault in America. It's um, it's an important book. It is a difficult book. I listened to it on audio and I was like driving around yelling at the people in my car. There are just some, because these are all real people in the book and there are some real people who do some really awful things. Uh, but it's, I think, the kind of thing that we need to know about, the kind of thing that we need to be talking about more and a good conversation opener to talk about then. How do we address these same problems that happen in law enforcement with rape and with sexual assault away from college campuses? What about uh, poor women who live in situations where they don't have access to good services? Uh, there's there's so many more places that the conversation needs to go. This is a great starting point from a trusted journalist uh, who really does the work here. And again, the book is called Missoula, Rape and the Justice System in a College Town by John Krakauer. It's amazing how fast the time goes. I know. I can't even believe it. I'm like, oh my goodness, we've been talking forever. Um, but about books, which makes yeah. it the best kind of talk. So I'm going to quickly launch into the last one. Um, I don't believe I talked about it before. I can't remember anymore. Um, this is called Rain, a Natural History, a Natural and Cultural History by Cynthia Barnett. Um, and when I first read about, about this book, I wondered how it was even possible to write about the history of rain. You know, mm -hmm. like, it's not a subject you can sit down and interview. Um, you might as well <laughs> write about the history of air. Or grass or dirt or something, you know. There's, But, like, there's not many other subjects you can write about that are 5 billion years old. Um, it either happens or it doesn't. And either way, it causes happiness and despair. You know, like, there's too much of it or there's mm. too little, you know. It's just, it's amazing. Um, but I love a microhistory, so I was all on board. I was like, I'm going to read this. And it was so amazing. I learned so many things. Like, there were torrential rains for thousands of years after the Earth, Earth was first formed. Like, it was trying to cool the planet off. Like, for thousands of years, they had to cool Whoa. the earth down. And Thomas Jefferson was one of the first big supporters of weather forecasting. Did not of know that. Of course he was. Wait, like, does a guy, like, he does everything. Is there anything that Thomas Jefferson was not involved in? Seriously. Being a decent human, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and the Assyrians invented umbrellas. Who knew? Okay. Right? Yeah, it's just loaded with so many things that will make you say, whoa. Um, and she points out how often Ray Bradbury discussed rain in his work, which was something huh. that I hadn't noticed until yeah, I've you know, not I noticed read that. Either. And, you know, Barnett just weaves all this trivia, um, like so, like those, you know, things and other cultural references in with scientific facts. And this rivals any biography that I've read on a subject that has a more discernible origin story. Like, it's so interesting. Um, I just absolutely loved it. And that's all I'm going to say about it. So it's, you know, again, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to give the title again. Yeah, yeah, it's, do it. It's Rain, a Natural and Cultural History by Cynthia Barnett. Um, over at Panels, our sister site that's all about comics, which is panels.net, one of the favorite graphic novels of the year over there was a nonfiction comic about weather. Oh, and, right. Like, 
Yes, the same. I think it's actually called weather. And then there's a long subtitle. Um, but sort of the same thing, like all these things that you never knew were true about weather. <laughs> totally amazing. Awesome. My last pick this year is, I think, my favorite book of the year. There were some incredible novels this year, and we talked about them last week, but this, I think, is my most memorable reading experience of the year, and I've talked about it a bunch on this show and on the Book Riot podcast, so I will be brief. It's H's for Hawk by Helen McDonald. Uh, when McDonald's father died, she decided to channel her grief into training goshawks, which are notoriously difficult to train. She had experience in bird training before, so she wasn't like starting at square one. Uh, but this is a whole different beast, quite literally. Uh, she was inspired by a book written by T.H. White, who wrote The Once and Future King, but was also really into hawk training. And the book is... Uh, about training hawks, but not really. Um, or as our colleague Jeff says, it's about training hawks in the same way that Moby Dick is a book about a whale. Um, there's so much more going on. It's really about transmuting your grief into something that is meaningful in your life. It's also about reading, about the way that the books that she read shaped how she processed uh, her, the loss of her father and also uh, her experiences training goshawks. It's about humans' relationships to animals and how that impacts our humanity, how it helps us to understand ourselves. It's just really incredible. I didn't think that I was interested in a book about training hawks. I didn't know if I wanted to read another grief memoir. This is a really singular, incredible book. Um, and it's been on a ton of best of, you know, 2015 lists for many, many good reasons. Uh, one of, I think, just the best new voices on the scene. And again, my most memorable reading experience of the year. And it's H is for Hawk by Helen McDonald. And there so we have we it. did it. That's our last books in 2015 show. What are you going to read now? I am reading um, Mr. Splitfoot by Samantha Hunt, nice. which I've just started. I'm not very far into it. I think I'm going to talk about it on the show in a couple of weeks. Uh, but it's about this um, boy and girl who grow up in a group home that's run by a like religious nut. And then as they grow up, they get involved in a cult and all of that. It rings a bunch of my bells. So I'm here for it. So far, the writing is really great, too. If you like cult books, you should read The Girls by Emma Klein. I just read that. That's like Random House's big 2016 book. Noted. It's awesome. What are you reading? I am going to read Three Martini Lunch by Suzanne Rindell. She wrote The Other Typist, which I love, oh, love, yeah. love, love, love. Like, if you like books with unreliable narrators, that is a great book to read. Um, and I'm anxiously awaiting a new book. And this one comes out in April. Again, it's called Three Martini Lunch. And it's about book publishing in 1958 <laughs> in New York. And some other stuff that I, I haven't started yet, so, so I don't like really Like the know, Mad Men but... era of publishing. Yeah. So it sounds awesome. I'm excited. That does sound awesome. Okay, well, that's our show. So thanks again to our sponsors, the DK Holiday Gift Generator. We'll have a link to them in the show notes and also to FabFitFun. Go to FabFitFun.com and use the coupon code BOOKS to save $10 on your first box. You can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com or hit us up on Twitter. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Liberty is Miss Liberty. If you've got a minute and you want to give us a holiday gift, we would appreciate an iTunes rating or review. Let's us know how we're doing and also, more importantly, helps other book lovers to find the show. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, and we would, uh, I could talk about books until my lips fell off, really. Um, we just don't have the time. But you can read about more titles uh, and some books out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books. 
as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. All right, that's it. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading.